0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about why football is still just soccer to Americans. More a game than a sport. First of all, let me say that I love football, and that has a lot to do with why I'm tackling this particular topic. Whether it be the American style of football, particularly the American style of football played by our universities, or association football, which America calls soccer. It seems only appropriate to hit this topic at this point in time, since the World Cup is winding to a close. At the time of this recording, we not only know who the Final Four are, but we know what the championship game and the game for third and fourth place will be. I'm recording before that happens because I want to hit a topic that is unrelated to the actual nuts and bolts of who won which game and who ultimately is going to hoist a championship trophy. FIFA is facing a huge opportunity, both on the positive side and some potentially big consequences on the negative side. First, the positives. At times, the United States games televised on ESPN this year drew an audience of more than 19 million people. That is 19 million people for games being broadcast at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on work days. That's a big opportunity. In fact, 19 million viewers for some of the countries that are competing in this year's World Cup might be um, pretty close to the kind of capacity you could get for a television viewing audience. But for the United States of America, 19.4 million people watching a sporting event is just a drop in the bucket. And what that represents to FIFA is a huge potential financial windfall. When you're talking about uh, sport catching on in the United States of America, people you know following teams, not just in our own uh, domestic major league soccer, but also in the international leagues, you also talk about what could be a potentially huge windfall in terms of merchandising. This is not a million-dollar opportunity. This is a billion-dollar opportunity. So, What stops the American people from latching on to soccer the way we latch on to other sports? Well, first, let me dismiss one idea. It can't be a matter of us having too many sports. We already follow plenty of sports, from a great degree, like the National Football League, to a lesser degree, like the National Hockey League, or uh, even some of the amateur events. But Americans watch a lot of sports. There's no reason why Americans wouldn't have room for one more game. The question, though, is, will we be viewing soccer as a game or as a sport? And some of that comes down to questions that Americans have about the rules. Now, let me take this in two different directions. I get a lot of complaints as a soccer fan from my fellow Americans who don't get it, who don't understand or don't like the rules of the game. I've heard everything from the field is too big. Uh, Why do they have so many players out there? Why does the time clock count up instead of down? Why do they add time at the end of each half instead of stopping the clock as they go? All these sorts of questions, most of which I lump into the category of, frankly, uh, short-sightedness, maybe even ignorance, on the part of the American viewer. We tend to view sports in this country from our own narrow perspective and don't necessarily understand that this is a game that's being played worldwide. I mean, we know that on paper. But to understand what it means for the same level of competition to be in play worldwide means that you've got to understand the importance of being able to officiate and put on a game even a game that attracts spectators with nothing more than three or four officials one person refereeing the game calling the shots wearing a couple of watches a side judge on each end potentially a fourth official managing issues that the coaches may have and substitutions some of the countries that play soccer at a very high level do not have Necessarily the opportunity to put every game into a giant stadium with a couple of clock masters and statisticians. It doesn't necessarily work that way. So I dismiss all of those arguments as simply not uh, having uh, enough exposure to the game itself and enough perspective on how the game is played internationally. But there are some issues that the American viewer has that I think are quite legitimate. And before I get to those, let me give you a warning. I'm likely to get a little bit keyed up about it. Now, first, please understand. I'm not coming at this from the perspective of, of any sort of sour grapes. I think the United States soccer team this year got as far as I expected them to go in the World Cup. I feel they could have gone further, but the game that they played against Ghana looked more like a 3-1 Ghana victory than a 2-2 tie going into penalty kicks, so I don't have any any notion that there's, a, there's an axe to grind here about either Ghana or the officiating. Now, before I go there, I think even FIFA has now recognized with statements that they've made going into the weekend here in the finals weekend, that they need to do something about their officiating and that they've planned to handle the refereeing selection process very differently four years from now. And that's probably a good idea. Although I will say that I don't believe the issues with game officiating this year were necessarily in the hands of the referee. The biggest failure was on the assistant referees. Um, those people managing the sidelines did, uh, by and large, an abysmal job, and perhaps maybe as much effort will be taken into selecting the best overall refereeing teams, perhaps keeping the referee and his assistants together, but making decisions based uh, on the qualifications and the effectiveness of all three. That would be a step in the right direction. Before I go further with complaints about... Um, You know, things that FIFA needs to do, desperately needs to do if they want to reach one of the most uh, lucrative audiences in the world for sport. Um, Let me first talk about some sanctions that I think the the governing body should immediately issue. The nation of Ghana should be facing either a, a fine, perhaps a very stiff fine or perhaps even some sort of suspension, for reckless disregard to the health and welfare, not only of their own players, but other players on the pitch from the quarterfinals on. Now, obviously, they only had one more game in the quarterfinals, but my concerns probably would have extended beyond the quarterfinals had Ghana managed to come away with a victory over Uruguay in that round uh, from the penalty kick shootout. My number one issue is Samuel Nkoum, but he may not be the only one. Here's what I mean. And to understand this, you probably will need to have seen the overtime periods, particularly the second overtime period in the Ghana USA Round of 16 game, and the beginning of the quarterfinal match between Uruguay and Ghana. My contention is that Ghana played players, perhaps even forced players to play, who were facing a serious medical condition, perhaps even a potentially communicable and not previously diagnosed medical condition that would not have just put that individual player at risk, but also the players from both teams who came into contact with that player at risk. Here's what I mean. Near the end of the second overtime in the USA-Ghana game, Nkoum attempted a bicycle pass, bicycle kick, to pass the ball out of the U.S. offensive zone and away from danger. When he landed, in, you know, fairly standard fashion, seemed to be a well-executed bicycle kick he suddenly screamed in pain. However, The issue that he was facing, the medical problem, waned long enough that his temporary paralysis completely subsided. He was able to flop over on his hands and knees, and it appeared that he was looking to see the trajectory of the ball that he hit, wanted to make sure that the ball had landed in the hands of one of his teammates, or perhaps had gone out of bounds, because he was not in the uh, best position to be laying on the field if the United States were going to be making another offensive charge to try to get a last-minute equalizer. Once he noticed that the ball had gone out of bounds, then he flopped back over on his back, once again screamed in pain, and was unable to function, was unable to move. The game was delayed for two, three, four minutes. While the the medical staff came out with a stretcher, he was checked to make sure his extremities were functioning properly. He was placed on a stretcher, and then that stretcher was carried off the field. He was later substituted for. And as a result of all this, most of the time in the game wound down. Now, a typical American fan might have found all this to be quite frustrating. I'm not one of those typical American fans. I understand the concept of injury time and that the time that is uh, lost in those sort of circumstances gets put back on at the end of the game. So instead of going to, in this case, 120 minutes, the game should have gone to perhaps 125, 126 minutes. Truth be known, this wasn't the only Ghana player to come down with an injury in the waning moments of the game, and there probably should have been seven or eight minutes added. But... You typically see in overtimes that the uh, injury time standard is, is not quite as generous as it might be after a 45-minute half. So this player, removed from the game for medical reasons, he did try to come back on, and eventually they substituted him off, and that pretty much drowned out the rest of, the re- of regulation play. My issue with Ghana is that nothing was ever revealed in terms of what was diagnosed as being wrong with this particular player. His issue was far more serious than anything that might happen if you, if you bruised a hip or if you pulled a muscle or if you strained yourself doing a bicycle kick. Clearly, he had a neurological disorder. And the reason I suggest that his problem was perhaps neurological in nature is that it came with either, with, with either an epileptic kind of an episode where at times he was having a seizure of sorts and at times he was fine, or it came with a, an issue of sporadic paralysis where in some instances, he was able to move around quite well, um, rolling over, leaning forward, leaning back. But at other times, he was virtually paralyzed and unable to move. So you've got somebody where we never identified what his problem was. His symptoms appeared but then went away We cannot be putting a player like that with that kind of condition in danger to himself by having him play 70 or more minutes in the very next game that they go out there and play. But we also can't risk the fact that there might be something seriously medically wrong with him. And the issue might be viral, not just... Physical In terms of, you know, you know, sore muscles or a pulled muscle, it might be actually something that could transmit from one player to another. And if we're talking about some kind of nerve damage here, if we're talking about something that dangerous, then something has to be done. So Ghana either immediately needs to be fined for placing a player in that kind of medical peril back out there on the field, or Ghana needs to perhaps acknowledge something that most of the people in the football loving world already understand in Coombe was faking. So if you're an American fan, you can see why you might have a little bit of a problem with this. Instead of seeing sporting play played out fully and completely, instead of getting the seven or eight minutes of injury time added back at the end of the overtime to essentially deny Ghana any advantage in trying to stall delay and and fake injuries until the clock actually winds down ghana was actually rewarded for their behavior the truth be known the right way to end a soccer match when you've got the kind of lead that ghana did was demonstrated really admirably by spain in the semifinal game against germany where they had the lead with you know a little bit more than 10 minutes to go and they simply controlled the ball maintained possession and passed their way through the rest of that time Nobody was faking a seizure, nobody was pretending to be paralyzed, nobody lapsed into an unexplained coma, and Spain actually generated genuine scoring chances. This is the reason that I suggest that that Ghana-U.S. game looked a lot more like a 3-1 Ghana victory than a 2-2 tie and why the Ghanaians pretended that they were in any danger is beyond me, because with the U.S. pressing with that many numbers forward, and with Ghana possessing both the speed and the drive to see that game through, there is no reason why a counterattack couldn't have produced another goal-scoring chance, and uh, then they wouldn't have had to go through the rigmarole. I mention this, again, not as an American fan who feels cheated that something um, took the opportunity for the United States to advance away. You know, the example in that round of 16 that I felt was more of a genuine cheat was the England-Germany game, where Germany doesn't have that, you know, fast-break counter punch opportunity in the second half if that half starts in a 2-2 tie, versus England, again, having to push forward and opening yourself up to the counterattack. Uh, the U.S. was in their 2-1 hole by, you know, mistakes of their own making. The issue that I've got with it is what do I tell my fellow Americans who have given you know, 19 million more of us, perhaps than ever before, who've given this game an honest shot in the last couple of World Cups. We've seen Italy fake their way through the last 10, 15 minutes of play, if they, especially if they find themselves down a man. And now we've seen Ghana essentially uh, seek bogus medical treatment as a way of, of la- letting an entire overtime period disappear. Something you've got to understand about Americans. We're essentially an adolescent nation. If you look at the all the countries in the world, and you think of the divide between what we call the old world and the new world, the United States is clearly in this new world part of things. And I would say that from the age of us as a nation, we've hit that point of having a lot of power, a huge inheritance facing us, a tremendous sense of entitlement, perhaps. And with that, we have sort of an adolescent petulance to us. Now, the number one thing I would say describes people from maybe the ages of 15 to I don't know, 25, 26 years old, is a heightened sense of fairness, perhaps a misplaced sense of fairness. Can't tell you how many times I heard when I was in that age bracket from my parents, life's not fair. Stop expecting it to be. But here's the United States in this mode where we do expect everything to be truly and genuinely competitively fair. And we don't like seeing people get away with cheating. In the National Football League, if one team is behind and they've got the ball, and the clock is running out, there's no advantage for the defensive team to fake injury because in the NFL, the clock stops whenever a player is hurt. There is, however, an advantage to the offensive team, especially an offensive team that is out of timeouts and doesn't successfully get the ball out of bounds to stop the clock that way. There is an advantage to an offensive team to, you know, have an injury, whether a real injury or a a fake injury. How does the National Football League deal with this? Pretty simply, if you get injured, whether legitimately injured or, or an injury that could be suspect or could be some sort of a simulation, uh, the first time you do it, a timeouts charged against you. If you're out of timeouts, delay of game gets charged against you. Eventually, the, the officials will just start running time off the clock against you to say, hey, if you're delaying the game, and it's within like the last two minutes of play, and you get an injury, even a legitimate injury. If you don't have a timeout to call, then we're going to run 10 seconds off the clock, and we're just going to drain the clock away from you. In other words, in the United States, the sports that we operate here, take very seriously the idea of not allowing one team to take advantage of the other team by manipulating the clock, especially by manipulating the clock due to simulation. I have never seen a U.S. soccer player fake an injury at this level of competition. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a U.S. soccer player fake an injury. Every now and then you'll see the classic roll around two or three more times, complain about how badly you're hurt in hopes that perhaps a player who's been chippy all along will get a a caution, will get a yellow card or something, or at least get a good stern talking to. But that's very different from the idea of pretending you're hurt when you're not, so that you can drain enough time off the clock that if the referee doesn't do his job well and put all that time back on, you perhaps get a strategic advantage. The issue that I had with Italy in the 2006 World Cup was that some of the Italian players were coming up injured, sometimes uh, coming up injured by you know clapping their own ankles together um, and making it look like they've been run into as a means of stopping play and preventing a genuine scoring opportunity by the other team. Again, in the sports that you see most often if you're an American citizen, like the NBA, the National Basketball Association, you know, it's a very different standard. If you get hurt on one end of the court while the other team is having a fast break on the other end of the court, the doctor doesn't come out to take care of your needs until that fast break has been complete. In other words, the fact that you've gone down a man does not mean that the other team doesn't get to take advantage of the fact that you're down a man and score on you if they are able. And then... Of course, in, in basketball, scoring opportunities happen and resolve themselves very quickly. So it's usually only 20 to 30 seconds at the most before the other team is either going to score or lose possession of the ball. So what, where does this all lead us to? Well, when we talked about drugs a few weeks ago, one of the observations was that there are certain dangers associated with lying. If you tell people that using marijuana is just as dangerous as using you know heroin, then it's you know, you think maybe you're going to be doing a good thing because you're scaring people away from using heroin, but what if the person ends up using marijuana at some point, finds that it is, it is not physically addicting, and he doesn't have withdrawal symptoms if he doesn't use it for a while? What if he decides that maybe you were telling him the truth all along, but instead of the two drugs being relatively the same amount of danger, they're the relative same amount of safe. And now you've got somebody using a much more dangerous drug because of the lie that was told to him that the drugs were relatively the same. Here's my issue. If you start faking injuries, one of the solutions for FIFA is to say, we're just not going to stop the game. The game is going to go on and we're, um, we're not going to do anything extraordinary to bring medical attention towards somebody. And if the team that's got the injured player chooses to voluntarily play the game out of bounds, Then we'll bring the medical staff out at that point, but the goal will be to get the medical staff on and off the field as quickly as possible, and the player's health becomes a secondary issue. I think the danger there is obvious. A lot of times players really are hurt, and a lot of times you could actually have a spinal injury or a neck injury or a head injury, and you wouldn't want a player in a very dangerous medical condition to not get treatment as quickly as possible because the referee is convinced that um, all your teammates have been faking, surely you're faking too. It's a dangerous thing to tell that kind of lie. And believe me, this kind of bad sportsmanship is every bit as much a lie as telling people that two drugs with a very different pedigree are equally dangerous just because you want to scare people away from using any drugs whatsoever. Am I right in suggesting that American audiences really would shy away from watching international football over this issue of simulation? Absolutely. But I've got a better argument to make than just, hey, here's a big market with a lot of people with a lot of money who could make the sport even richer and more popular than it already is. Although more popular than it already is is a relative thing because, you know, from a population perspective, America's not going to move the dial that much. Soccer's already the most popular sport in the world. But here's the question. Is somebody out there ready to make an argument in favor of simulation? Because that's the issue. We're not talking about good sporting play. We're not talking about good teamwork here. We're talking about something that a lot of clubs in the world really don't do. You don't see a lot of this from England. You don't see, I would say you see almost none of it from the United States. There are other clubs out there that don't do a lot of this um, simulating and embellishing that you see so often. So is there an argument that it's good for the game? Or would it being stamped out completely, not just bring you um, a greater likelihood of attracting another big audience, but would it actually just improve the quality of play anyway? I'm suggesting, strongly suggesting, that it would improve the quality of play either way. So how do we do it? Am I asking the impossible of FIFA? Am I asking them to move the dial in a way that they can't possibly do? Are they gonna play the card that they can't use technology here because the poorest countries in the world won't be able to use the same technology? I don't think so. Every country in the world has a camcorder, Every country in the world may not have high quality HD TV cameras with multiple angles, but every country in the world has a camcorder. And certainly, what you really need to do here only requires you to have a standard in place where games are reviewed the day after the game. Especially in international competitions like Gold Cup, Confederation Cup, World Cup, FIFA needs to be looking at these tapes. So, how would you manage it? Well, first, very simply. The referee on the field and his two assistants, and even the fourth official, may not have the right kind of angle to be certain that, they're, that a player who's pretending to be hurt isn't hurt or injured himself or is embellishing his condition. So there's not much that we can ask of them to do more than simply understanding the importance of putting that injury time back on. I don't think that six minutes would have been an outrageous thing at the end of the USA-Ghana match. It would have been appropriate, and it would have sent the right kind of message to Ghana and every other team in the tournament. However, the next day is where you can really make a difference because if FIFA were to review each one of these games the day after and look at all of the injury situations, look at all the, um, you know, all, really all the fouls, just look at them and see is a player trying to uh, fake an injury to get a yellow card on an opponent is a f- player trying to fake an injury in order to get a penalty kick opportunity or a free kick in a dangerous area, or is a player faking or embellishing an injury. Or, uh, you know, taking longer to recover than it makes sense for him to need to take because he's trying to drain the clock down. It's those situations where uh, four years ago in 2006, when the American team had a fast break going and and Italy was in danger of being caught shorthanded, Cannavaro bumped into an American player, um, went down screaming in pain. The game was stopped immediately. The fast break opportunities, how Americans would view it, was halted in its tracks a stretcher was brought out, kind of our was stretchered off the field. But the second that stretcher hit the ground on the sideline, he was up, he was fit. It was just like he just warmed up and put his pads on. There wasn't a single thing wrong with him. And he was exa- actually a little bit exasperated that it took the official a few seconds to welcome him back onto the field. It's those situations that you're going to catch on tape. Now, maybe we just turn those who like to embellish into better actors. Maybe now instead of faking a seizure, they start faking comas. It's a possibility, but let's talk about the penalties that FIFA ought to enact here and see how that works. Because one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to interfere with the referee's control of the game or the final stats of the game by giving what I would describe as posthumous cautions and disqualifications. Red cards and yellow cards happen during play. So let's imagine a hypothetical situation or in game one of a of a World Cup in the, in the round robin play. Conavarro picks up a yellow card. You now, professional foul, needed to do what he had for the team, gets a yellow card. So he's carrying a card. Now, for those of you who don't really understand world soccer, in a tournament like the World Cup, once he gets that second card, he's going to have to sit out the next game. Now, if he were to get Two yellow cards in the same game, that would be the equivalent of a red card. It would be the equivalent of an immediate disqualification. And not only would he be out that game and the next game, uh, his team would have to play the balance of the game that he was um, ejected from shorthanded. So essentially, they would play with 10 against their opponent's 11 men for the balance of play in that particular game. So I'm not talking about that. So Canovaro leaves game number one with, with a yellow card. But what happens if near the end of the game, Italy happens to have a lead and the other team's putting a lot of pressure on them. And somewhere along the way, with no real contact, no real provocation, um, Cannavaro comes up with an injury. And uh, it's revealed later on the tape that he really wasn't hurt at all, or at least he wasn't hurt as badly as the stoppage would have mandated, because again, same kind of situation as soon as he's off on the sidelines, he's back up and ready to go because he doesn't want his team to be down a man because he's off on the sideline being getting treatment he doesn't need. But he also did want to stop the play and keep that clock running running completely down and hopefully running completely out in a situation where maybe the lead official and the fourth official would not put as much time back to compensate for the time that was being wasted. If FIFA were to identify that in the uh, review of the tape at the end of the game, then I think what you do at that point is you immediately say, Simulation, without regard for whether you've received any cautions in any game, Simulation is an immediate disqualification for the next game. So in game number two, Canovaro cannot play, because in game number one, he simulated an injury. That's kind of how it it would work. So is he still carrying the one yellow from the first game? Yes. Because this has nothing to do with the yellow card. This is just about a uh, disqualification based on the fact that the review of the tape after the game revealed then a simulation was being used, and the simulation is illegal. It's bad for the game. So if in the third game, when he's now back on the field again, he commits another professional foul, or he commits some sort of dissent or unsportsmanlike conduct and gets a second yellow card, not second in the game, but second in the tournament, he's still going to be disqualified from their fourth game if they advance far enough to get to that fourth game. Because again, nothing in the disqualification for simulation erased his first yellow It wasn't an accumulation of yellows. The yellow cards happen again during the 90 minutes or 120 minutes of play. However, simulation, separate offense altogether, bad for the game, bad for the fans, bad for the officials, bad for the medical staff to be having to tend to fake injuries, bad for everybody, merits a suspension. Would there be teams who might have to go without four or five or six key players going into the next game? If they're that stupid, yes, they would. But you know what? The teams that I enjoy following the most probably would not have that quality about them. Again, let's go back to the Spain and Germany game. You didn't even see a whole lot of situations in that Spain-Germany semifinal where a regular file during the run of play was being embellished in any way to try to get um, a caution or a yellow card or a good talking to, to the opponent. Um, most of the game, that was played pretty straight up. And when Spain took the lead, Spain drained out the game, not by rolling around on the ground pretending to be hurt, but by passing the ball and playing in a very effective and very entertaining to watch keep away from Germany. I have absolutely no doubt that in the same situation, Germany would have and could have executed the exact same game plan. And in this case, again, Spain won the game 1-0. It was closer to being 2-0 than it was to being tied up, at least when you look at the last maybe five minutes of play. And in the USA-Ghana match... Really could have been a three to one game, more likely to be a three to one game than a two to two game. So who was cheated by all of the fakery? Who was cheated by all of the delay of game? Who was cheated by the nonsense? The fan. And if FIFA doesn't figure out that the fan is the number one customer they have to take care of in any of these matches, then they may begin to have issues internationally I guarantee they will not convert the 19.4 million Americans who watched the USA Algeria game, who left that game with a high, op- with a high opinion of the game, a high impression of FIFA as, as, a, as an organizing body, a high impression of the World Cup as a product, only to see some of that drain away in the 30 minutes of overtime between the USA and Ghana, because the quality of the finish that they saw in USA Algeria. The quality of the finish that we saw later in the tournament between Spain and Germany was absolutely not evident at all in the way Ghana handled things. So, to recap, I'm a little bit worried about Nkum, the Ghanaian player. I hope he's okay. I'm a little bit angry at Ghana if he is okay, because that kind of fakery simply shouldn't be, should not be tolerated. I would like to think that the US team, if a player engaged in those tactics, at the end of one of the games in the tournament that the U.S. coaching staff would bench that player or perhaps even stick him on a plane and say, you know, your tournament's over because that's not the way we do things. There's something decidedly unmacho. There's something decidedly unsportsmanlike about pretending to be hurt when you're not. This is supposed to be a game where people line up person to person, position to position, in this case because it's, it's the male World Cup tournament, man to man. And I'm calling out a little bit the masculinity, calling out more than just a little bit the integrity, and I'm calling into question the quality of the game itself, if FIFA and UEFA and other bodies cannot address this issue of simulation. If I wanted to watch bad acting, I'd watch a Hollywood film. Hello, Dave Prowse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network, right Back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! So I guess my message here from uh, from the United States to the world on this particular issue is man up. Man up. Is there a possibility that a player who is legitimately injured but whose circumstances don't appear to be dangerous to him as a player, and who doesn't find his way to seek treatment as quickly as possible or get off the field to get the balance of his treatment on the sidelines as quickly as possible. Is there a chance that a player like that might get suspended for no good reason? Yeah, there is, but I would say that that uh, that's a problem well worth dealing with. That essentially, this is a difficult game. This is a challenging game. It's a physically demanding game. And in the case of the game where the men are playing, It's a man's game. You know what? I see a lot less of this sort of simulation in women's soccer. Now, part of that is because as athletes, I think there's a certain level of toughness that women bring to the game that men, who may be be able to have an answer to that in terms of their strength, but certainly don't have an answer to women in terms of toughness. So some of it is just that maybe the women athletes have a higher pain threshold. But the bottom line is, if we're talking about the man's game and this year's Men's World Cup, man up, guys. Come on. It's the biggest problem stopping Americans from joining the party and enjoying the sport. There's another problem that Americans have, and that other problem is going to lead me to today's different drummer. I'm going to cite Mike Emmerich, who is an NHL play-by-play commentator. Who is Mike Emmerich? My, Mike Emmerich is an American sportscaster who's best known for his work in hockey. Like any hockey player, he started off in the minor leagues, in the IHL and the, uh, the AHL, and worked his way up. When I first knew I was listening to Mike Emmerich, might have heard him before, you never know. When I first knew I was listening to Mike Emmerich, he was paired with Bill Clement as the, uh, the ESPN TV commentators for NHL hockey. I'd love to be able to cite Bill Clement at the same time because I think that the, uh, you know, the Canadian player who was a, uh, a center for the Philadelphia Flyers for many years really did a lot, in, in, as well as Mike Emmerich, to bring the personality to the game, to have a little fun with it. But the biggest reason that I'm citing Mike Emmerich is that as a viewer of hockey who really wasn't all that familiar with the ins and outs or the details of the game – Mike Emmerich not only called the games with a great deal of accuracy, injected humor wherever he could, but he also found a way to keep me very informed. I went from being somebody who had barely a spectator's knowledge of the sport to somebody who had a very good working knowledge of the ins and outs of of hockey. And a lot of that was the effort of Mike Emmerich and Bill Clement to explain the game to what they wisely perceived to be a brand new set of American viewers watching ESPN, sometimes watching ESPN late at night. When I first encountered the ESPN broadcast that featured uh, those two men doing the commentating, it was getting off work from what we would call a second shift position, where somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m., I would get off work and get home and be kind of wired up. When you're in the newspaper business and you've got that midnight deadline to go to print, when you finally accomplish that goal and, you know, 30 minutes later, 20 minutes later, you get the first copy back and you can see that the page you've laid out looks like you want and that you haven't misspelled any words in the headline after all, and that you know there's no major issue, and you're ready to go home, you don't immediately relax. You can't turn off that deadline pressure right away. What happens to you instead is that by the time you get home, you're still a little bit keyed up. And if you did try to jump immediately into bed and try to go to sleep, you're either going to fail to successfully get to sleep, which is a problem, or you're going to be dreaming about work all night, which might even be a bigger problem. How I would manage it was that me... And my hockey-loving cat would sit on the couch and watch the end, or perhaps, if we were lucky, the entire game that was being broadcast on the ESPN from the West Coast perspective. Now, the best thing about catching the West Coast game is that we were seeing teams like the Detroit Red Wings. More importantly, we were seeing teams like the Edmonton Oilers. Because back then, the Edmonton Oilers had Mark Messier, Wayne Gretzky, and a world-class set of complementing players. So we're seeing the best that hockey had to offer on an ESPN um, broadcast that was committed to trying to bring Americans into the sport with two commentators who were able to explain the game in an entertaining way that didn't feel like you were being spoon-fed in education. And yet at the same time, watching two, three, four, five games with these guys on the broadcast team equipped me so fully and completely that by the time the Stanley Cup Finals came along, I was able to follow the playoffs and see where things were heading and make the connections and understand what was going on in a way that just never would have been possible uh, by reading a book or switching around and sampling different commentators. Today we have the problem of overload, where back then if ESPN wasn't showing hockey at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, I wasn't going to see any hockey games. Today, you have choices. We probably have two, three different channels that might be showing an NBA playoff game, might be showing an NHL Stanley Cup um, a Stanley Cup game, but back then you had the one the one opportunity to hear how this game was going to be called, and the quality control from Bill Clement and Mike Emmerich was very very high, so that was a blessing. That's missing in soccer. Right now, I am not seeing American broadcasts, even of of MLS, where I feel like I'm getting that same quality of education. Now. Fox Soccer Channel is doing a, a, a marvelous job, and by tapping into the English Premier League, really getting high-quality commentation from England. So there's good education coming that way, and those games are very entertaining. However, even when the um, color commentator is good, even when the ex-player who's up in the booth is good and really understands the intricacies and can explain it all, I'm not hearing that same voice of wisdom from the play-by-play person that I That you would hear from Mike Emmerich. Mike Emmerich's relationship with hockey was such that he may be more responsible than anybody could ever measure or ever know for bringing new fans into the game. Because you had somebody with a great deal of wisdom and expertise who was committed to explaining things in a way that everyone could understand and did so with a great deal of energy and a great deal of humor. Now, I say that I say that not to imply that Mike Emrick is in any way unheralded. Mike Emrick actually is was awarded by the Hockey Hall of Fame, the Foster Hewitt Memorial Award for outstanding contributions to hockey broadcasting. So I've never been to the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto, but I have a feeling if I were there, there'd be at least a plaque or something listing Mike Emrick among all the other sports broadcasters for hockey as one of the greatest that, that's ever lived. So it's not like he hasn't been recognized. The difference is that I don't think that the average American sports fan recognizes not just what he's done, but how important that role is. And if Americans are going to hop on to the uh, soccer bandwagon, if we're going to take the world's game of football and give it any place at the table with American football, we need somebody from a play-by-play perspective who can contribute as much to the viewing experience for soccer that Mike Emmerich has done and perhaps continues to do for hockey, my different drummer this week, somebody who's able to explain the game while it's happening. It's not as easy as it looks, and Mike Doc Emrit really does a surgical job. I know a lot of this may sound like it's a great big rant against the most popular game in the world. And who am I as an American? Even, in a, even as an American football fan, even as an American soccer fan, who am I as an American to suggest that drastic changes need to be made? You know what? My point of view is that these changes aren't that drastic. You know, if this is just a game, if this is just an activity, if this is just some outdoor fun, then it's not that big of a deal if somebody pretends to be heard. But if it's a sport... If we really are conferring trophies upon one team over another team, if millions of dollars are truly being doled out as a result of the way the competition actually winds up, then it may be FIFA's responsibility to, you know, look to the United States of America and say, okay, listen, they're there. You've got a misplaced sense of fairness. The game's not always going to be called right. We're going to miss some offsides calls. We're going to call a foul that wasn't a foul. Um, We're going to call penalty kicks that probably shouldn't have been called. We're going to miss penalty kicks that should have been awarded because of fouls or handballs in the box. That sort of thing is going to happen. But, you know, this is less about standards of fairness, where everybody who's an adolescent eventually grows up to realize life is not fair. This is more about justification for the game itself. Not fairness to the viewer, but justice for the viewer. Anybody who has spent money to watch 90 Minutes of Soccer did not sign up to see 15 minutes of people pretending to be hurt. And we all know that it's true. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And comments are enabled at the website, com. It's not going to be very often that I drift into the realm of sports, but when I do, like today, I'm going to bring some passion. Thanks for listening. Thank you.